Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and depression? Those lines are from the Psalms in the Bible. In the Psalms, the prayers of God's people, there's a fair bit of questioning going on about God. Why God? It's a question the Bible encourages us to ask if we're feeling that way. Why do you hide yourself, God, when trouble's going on? You could stop it. You can do anything. So why do you allow suffering? This is the third week in our series on suffering. And last week we looked at the first half of that verse, Romans 8.28, where it said that we know that in all things God works. Last week we were seeing that God is in control of everything. He has a purpose and he uses everything to bring about that purpose. So this week we're going to explore what that purpose is. Okay, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. What is the good of those who love him? Romans 8.28 has to be one of the most wonderful passages in the whole Bible. I mean, whatever's going on, no matter how good it is, no matter how bad it is, no matter what's going down, if you're a Christian, you can be sure that God is working for your good. Which I think is what makes this passage so disturbing at the same time. Because at times, God's definition of what's good seems different from our definition of what's good. Doesn't it? A marriage that's not working, a job that you hate, a cancer diagnosis, a husband who doesn't want to know about Jesus, children with ongoing sicknesses, your wife sleeping with another man, your father walking out on you, your life being so messed up that you can't even get to sleep at night or get out of bed in the morning, watching your children spiral out of control and there's nothing you can do about it, relationships with people that is so superficial that no one really knows what's going on in your life, addictions that you're trapped in, a church family who fail you and disappoint you, confusion, children that you can't have, priorities you can't get right, pressures at school, having an accident that totally changes the course of your life, headaches, migraines, backaches, allergies, flu, the list goes on, and yet we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. So why is God's idea of what is best for us so different to what we would like to have? I mean, you pray for your children to grow up and love Jesus and get married and have a normal life. If you wanted to have rebellious children, you would have asked God for that in your prayers. You prayed to get better. If you wanted to stay sick, well, you would have asked for it, wouldn't you? You prayed for a good job. If you wanted a job that you don't enjoy, that sucks all the life out of you with a boss that doesn't understand you, you could have asked God for that. Is that what you asked for? Sometimes children ask their parents for things that are not good for them. Lollies. And as parents, you decide to give them what's best rather than what they ask for. And just like a parent has a different idea of what is good than a three-year-old has, God's idea of what is best for us often differs from ours. 
And thankfully, not only does he know what's best for us, he gives us what's best for us. So what is this good? What is the good that God is working towards in all these things? Well, let's read on because Paul tells us in the very next verse, open your Bibles to Romans 8, 28. That's where we're starting. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. What is that purpose? Well, verse 29 tells us. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What's God's plan? What's the good? There's a bit of there's a few long words in there, but the answer is actually very simple. God's plan is that his children, followers of Jesus, be made like Jesus. The word there is we can be conformed to the likeness of his son. Now that won't happen now, but on the day when Jesus returns, Philippians promises us that he will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. In other words, when Jesus returns and we enter into the new creation, we'll be glorified, is the word the Bible uses. And then, when we're made like Jesus, Jesus will be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's God's plan. That's where he's working towards in the end. It's centered not around us, but around Jesus. And it's about us being there as his brothers and sisters. God's ultimate purpose is to glorify Jesus. But our good, the best thing for us, is to be a part of that future. In fact, Paul says as much back in verse 17, if we're children of God, then we're heirs. We've got something to inherit. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Glory, goodness, weighty, wonderful future. That future is what God is guaranteeing here in this sequence of events in verse 30 which again has some big words in it, but when you look at what it's saying, it's actually quite good. Look at verse 30. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Start with called, because called's an easy word. Paul is talking to people who have been called. Those who've heard the gospel... God's call to come back to them and repent and who've come to Jesus. Paul is talking here to Christians. If you're a Christian, if you've heard God's call and you're now following Jesus, Paul says in verse 30 here that God's plan for you actually started way back before you even heard that message. It starts in verse 29. Before the world began, he foreknew you. He knew you would be his. He had it. He had you picked out in his mind. And then in verse 29, he predestined you. Not a word we use a lot, but pre means before. Um, pre-nuptial, pre, you know, pre-before. And destined, destiny. He decided beforehand. Your destination to be like Jesus when Jesus returns, that's where you're headed. And God has had that planned out from before the world was created. And having set that as your certain future... Then he called you to that. He did it. 
See, it's God's work. He brought someone along in your life to tell you about Jesus. He got someone to invite you to church. He caused you to understand the gospel because it's his plan. He's working his purposes out. Then after he did that, after he knew you and planned out your future and called you to him, he justified you is the next word. Justified means he he declared you right. He says, you're not guilty. Your sin is forgiven. It wasn't you who did that. It's not up to you to make yourself good enough for God. He gave Jesus to die for you. You're justified by God because Jesus took the punishment for your sin. And when you trusted in Jesus, he justified you. He said, you're not guilty. Welcome to me. He did it. And after having done all those things, and that's where you stand now, the final step when Jesus returns is that you'll be glorified. You'll be made like Jesus, and this sinful body and all the rubbish that comes along with it will be gone. That's God's purpose. That's the good that he says that he's working towards in your life, in all things. Having foreknown you, having predestined you, having called you, having justified you, he will now finish his work. And that's what verse 28 is all about. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. That purpose, that good purpose that he's working towards is that you will be made like Jesus and share in his glory in the new creation. There's nothing bigger that you could ask for. Now, sometimes we take this verse, Romans 8, 28, and we trivialize it by trying to find some little piece of good in life that comes out of every bad thing that happens to us and identify that that's the good God's doing. We look for the silver lining on every cloud. Now, even if you're not a Christian, you can do that. You know, maybe God's put me here so I can help someone else in the same situation. Maybe this will bring my family closer together. Maybe this hardship will help overcome some sin in my life. Maybe I'll be a good witness to other people in this. The problem is God doesn't guarantee any of those things. You may never meet anyone else in the same situation that you can help. Rather than bring your family together, your suffering might tear your family apart. You might respond to your suffering, suffering with bitterness and anger and be a bad witness. That is not the good that God is promising in Romans 8.28. It's not that somehow some good might come of this problem. Let's see if we can find it. God is promising a particular good, the best possible good, that you will one day be made like Jesus and share in his glory, and that is what God is working towards. In fact, that's the same promise God makes again and again as we start to search the rest of the Bible for promises about God in suffering. Not that he'll just get you through this lot of suffering, but that suffering itself is working in your life to make you the kind of person that will hang in till the end. I mean, just like an athlete needs to put in hard work so they can run a marathon. God uses suffering to train us to develop perseverance, endurance, so that we'll be there when Jesus returns. I want to just look quickly at three passages 
that have exactly that same idea, just so that you don't think I'm making it up. The first one is James chapter 1, verse 2, that was read earlier. Flip with me to James chapter 1, verse 2. So Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Timothy, Hebrews is pretty big, and then you get to James. If you hit Revelation or Peter or you've gone too far. James chapter 1, verse 2, and James is talking about the purposes of suffering. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, see all sorts of trials, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Suffering develops perseverance, the ability to stick at something. To persevere as a Christian is to keep following Jesus. On Friday, I was, um, Friday morning, I was reading this book by Johnny Erickson Tata. Um, it's a, she's a female. She talks about a girlfriend in the book, and some of the people at Morning Church were a bit upset that Johnny had a girlfriend. But Johnny's a girl. That's why she has a girlfriend. And um, I was thinking about this very idea that comes out of the book um, about how we're to be joyful in trials. And within 10 seconds of putting the book down on the floor, I cracked my head on the doorway. And um, I was meant to be thinking joy in trials, but let me tell you, there was no such thoughts. My head was spinning and I was dizzy and I had no thoughts. Then I felt the, tr- the blood trickling down my eyebrow and I'm thinking, i just got to get something on here for the blood. And over the next half hour, as you do, I'm finding disinfectant, I'm putting on band-aids, I'm cleaning it up. And all the time, in the back of my head, there's this idea, be joyful in trials. So I had enough, got angry, I looked at the mirror and I said, righto, thanks Lord for this bang on the head. Now, it wasn't a particularly spiritual moment. I felt like an idiot, didn't have any warm fuzzies. It is so unnatural to be joyful when we have a problem. I found the best part, I lost the best part of half an hour of my morning, maybe an hour. And then I didn't feel like praying for the rest of the morning because my head was throbbing. I felt like being grumpy for the rest of the day. Something so simple as a cut on the head. And to be honest, I couldn't see anything good coming from it. Sure, it's under God's control. Sure, he allowed it. But how's it working for anyone's good? I'd try to go mad looking for the silver lining on that cloud. But God tells me here in this very verse that it's bigger than that. Every trial, big or small, is developing in me perseverance that will one day when it's all added up see me stand before jesus when he returns now that's exactly what romans was talking about the good that god is working for in your suffering is that you stay christian and every time you suffer you get better at it and what will the result be well james 1 verse 12 blessed is the man or woman who perseveres under trial because when they've stood the test they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him that's why we can rejoice in trials God's working for our good secondly turn with me all the way back to Romans chapter 5 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 is talking all about that future that that Romans 8 was talking about. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, declared right, we're God's friends, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's all the future there, the hope of the glory of God. But what about now? Verse 3, not only so, But we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. It's exactly the same thing. Suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces the kind of character, stickability, someone who can keep going. It's the idea of someone who's a veteran rather than a new recruit. And then that character that maturity in us strengthens our hope. Suffering helps us to persevere right through to the day when Jesus returns. Thirdly, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1, right back past James again. After Hebrews, after James, 1 Peter. The revelation you've got too far. One Peter chapter one is talking about suffering again, and starts in exactly the same way, talking about our future hope. In verses three to five, it's talking about the future that God has planned for those who love Him, His purpose. But let's pick it up at verse six. In this, in that future hope, you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while. You may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Why have we got these trials? Verse 7. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Again, God brings us through our trials and out the other end, right through to the day when Jesus returns. That's why we can rejoice with what Peter describes as an inexpressible and glorious joy. Verse 9, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Suffering is producing in you the thing that you most want, to be saved, to be there with Jesus on that final day. Put those three passages together. And we don't have to be morbid about our suffering. We have something to rejoice in. Not simply that some good might come out of our trials, but suffering is the very way that God keeps us persevering to the end. Now, what do we do with all that as a church family, uh, with each other, with ourselves? Well, I want to think about with each other and then personally. In terms of each other, when our Christian brothers and sisters are suffering, and there's been quite a lot of it in morning church, I think the stuff that has been happening in morning church has been great. Being there to support each other, 
help people in practical ways, being there just to listen to people, not to say anything, just hear them out, let them cry, helping out in um, practical ways with simple things, as well sometimes as just give people space and not try and fix their problems, but let God work in them. All those things are good, but I th- and they're great and keep doing them, but the most important thing that we can do that is always the right thing to do is to pray for people. Not to give them advice, not to quote Romans 8.28 to them, but to pray for them. Because God is the one who strengthens us in our suffering. God's the one who comforts people. God's the one who causes people to persevere. God is the one who is working in people's suffering to bring about perseverance, to bring about his good. So above all things, we must be praying for each other. And in fact, Paul has a great model prayer. Don't look it up. It's in Colossians 1.11, where he prays for the Colossian church. Ever since he's met them, he's been praying about them and he's been praying that they'd know God's will and they'd be filled with understanding. But then at the end of the prayer, he says, and I pray that you, being strengthened with all power, according to God's glorious might, big build up here, so that you may have great endurance and patience. I'll read it again. That God would strengthen them with all power, according to his glorious might, that they may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father. That is a great prayer to be praying for each other that we'd persevere. That is a prayer that we know God will answer because he's promised that's his plan for Christians. That is exactly what he's working towards in everyone who's a follower of Jesus. So let's keep praying for each other. But in terms of ourselves, as Christians, when we face suffering, God's encouraging us to rejoice Because what is being achieved by God in our suffering is actually greater than the suffering itself. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. I just want to read to you from that John Erickson Tata book. Um, She's a quadriplegic and she describes just everyday life. Desperation is a part of a quadriplegic's life each and every day. For me, suffering is still that jackhammer breaking apart my rocks of resistance every day. It's still the chisel that God is using to chip away at my self-sufficiency and my self-motivation and my self-consumption. Suffering is still that sheepdog snapping And barking at my heels, driving me down the road to Jesus where I otherwise do not want to go. My human nature, my flesh, does not want to endure hardship like a good soldier or follow Christ's example of suffering or welcome trial as a friend. No, my flesh doesn't want to rejoice in suffering. And it happens almost every morning. Please know that I'm no expert at this wheelchair thing. I'm no professional at being a quadriplegic. So many mornings when I wake up, 
and I can hear my girlfriend come to the front door to help me get out of bed and get ready for the day, she goes to the kitchen, turns on the water, starts brewing coffee. I know that in a few moments she's going to come gliding into the bedroom where she'll meet me with a happy, good morning, and all I'm doing is lying with my eyes closed thinking, oh God, I can't do this. I often pray in the morning, God, I can't do this. I cannot do this thing called quadriplegia. I have no resources for this. I have no strength for this. But you do. You've got the resources. You've got strength. I can't do quadriplegia. But I can do all things through you who strengthen me. And then she reflects on other people. Do you know who the truly handicapped people are? They are the ones, many of them Christians, who hear the alarm clock go off at 7.30 in the morning, throw back the covers, jump out of bed, take a quick shower, choke down breakfast, zoom out the front door. They do all this on autopilot without stopping once to acknowledge their creator, their great God. Quite offering, we see suffering as an obstacle. Stops us from getting somewhere. Stops us from being something that, something that we should be. But God is using our suffering to keep us loving him. That's why James and Peter and Paul, all of them have suffered and they all tell us, rejoice in your suffering. Because God is working in your suffering to bring you what you most want and what you most long for. So you don't know how the disaster that you're now going through will end. You don't know whether in 10 years it will have all turned, turned around and you'll be happy, have a happy ending or whether it will be worse. But if you're a Christian, if you have the spirit of God in you testifying to you that you're his child, if you have that spirit in you groaning for the new creation then your deepest desire is to be there on the final day with Jesus in glory. And more than you want good health, more than you want a good job, more than you want to be free from pain, isn't that what you want above all things? To be with Jesus in glory? Well, the great news is, that what we most desire is exactly what God is working towards in all things. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Father, like Paul prayed in that prayer to the Colossians, we do indeed need a mighty work of your spirit. We need a miracle. We need your mighty power to be at work in our lives so that we can rejoice in our sufferings. Father, we need you to bring about perseverance in our lives. Because, Father, if it wasn't for you, we'd be still in our sin.
and we'd still be your enemies. But thank you that it's you who chose us. It's you who called us. It's you who washed us clean. And it's you who are keeping us till Jesus returns. Father, please pour out your spirit onto our church family that each and every single person here today, above all things, would desire to be like Jesus. That we desire that more than pleasure. That we desire that more than freedom from suffering. Father, please help us to be able to be joyful, rejoice in suffering, knowing that every trial we face You're working in it to bring us one step closer to being with Jesus. Thank you. Amen.